millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Abby Andrews talks about her debut novel, The Word for Woman is Wilderness. Abby Andrews was born in 1991 in the Midlands and now lives and works in south-east London. She studied English and creative writing at Goldsmiths and her work has been published in The Dark Mountain Project, Tender, Five Dials and The Bohemoth, amongst others. And Abby's debut novel, The World for Women is Wilderness, we're going to be talking about today. Abby, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. Would you describe the book for us? How would you describe it? So it's a fictional travelogue about a girl that goes from the UK to Alaska um, to stay in a cabin in the wilderness, and she goes without flying, so it's like a road trip. And then she stays in this cabin for three, three weeks, four weeks. So the premise of it is that she is making a documentary about what it means to be a woman doing that rather than a man doing it and sort of claiming the autonomy as a woman. So the text is sort of like a work journal, I guess, or like a travelogue that goes along with her documentary making. And this is Erin. Tell us about something more about who Erin is. She's 19. She comes from a small town. She's kind of bored of her small town life and hasn't really been outside of the UK much and she decides before she goes to uni or whatever that she wants to sort of go away on this big trip. I guess the idea is that she's sort of following in the the footsteps of certain other writers. I wanted to talk about some of those writers, Thoreau, Jack London. What is it about these writers? Well, there's a kind of... I guess I was thinking about how there's a canon of... It's not so much nature writing as it is kind of adventure writing and that it's heavily dominated by men as a canon. So the idea was that she was going there with these texts in her head and like trying to access what it was that they were talking about that always gets talked about in terms of man and he. So, I mean, obviously these things are, you know, now the modern equivalent of this that you talk about in the book would be like the TV show, like Bear Grylls or something mm-hmm. again, like a man against the wilderness. And obviously... This has a a feeling of imperialism to it, obviously, because it's either about a man trying to tame the wilderness, but also the other thing you talk about is this idea of a man being more authentic Mm -hmm. out in the wild, I guess. Would that be right? Yeah, so just going back to those, like, the canonical writers, so, like, the whole transcendental approach to it being a thing of... It's not 
your relationship to nature isn't one of domination it's one of um communion i guess but the on the one hand women are excluded from the dominating model of it the imperialist model and then they're also simultaneously excluded from the one that's communion so it was looking it was trying to look at why why both those things at once when they're kind of actually two different tangents and i guess we should talk about why women are excluded from that because there's there's sort of a couple of ideas here as well obviously it seems odd to be talking about a sort of feminist version of this in the in the imperialist context Mm -hmm. but even in this sort of transcendental version of it there's a couple of ideas that come out of the book that first of all women are part of nature that you know men act upon as well as you know the the rest of nature but also this idea that they're you know somehow as happens in the book to to Aryan people are constantly concerned about her everybody she meets is like oh why are you doing this the Mm -hmm. idea of a woman on her own, whether that's walking down, you know, the Trans-Canadian Highway or sitting in a diner on her own, these are things that immediately strike people out as odd. I guess it's we still have it ingrained this kind of primitivist idea that women are inherently social and that we don't have the kind of physical capacities to survive in the wild like a man does. And I think maybe that just still transpires now into how people think about a woman alone doing something like that appears to be vulnerable. The parallel is made the whole way through between her and Chris um, McCandless, who did a really similar trip. If it's a guy doing it, even though they're roughly similar ages, it's sort of this thing of, oh, he's going on this big adventure and he's doing this thing and he's going to learn a lot from it and isn't it great? Whereas... There's more of a kind of vulnerability put on her and then also responsibility attached to it because people's attitude is a little bit more, I think, oh, aren't you going to make your parents worry loads? It's also true in the fact that, you know, obviously she's on this journey is more in danger ever from other people, I was going to say other human beings, obviously we're talking about men, than from nature itself. Mm -hmm. Um, She has encounters with, you know, some sort of, dangerous parts of nature but she's always more in danger from actual other human beings of course that male violence is enacted on men that are doing this like chris mccandless for instance yeah that are you know doing this sort of journey as well but of course you know there there is that truth in that idea that you know she is somehow vulnerable on the road but again ironically it's it's, it's not nature it just shows how our perceptions about women's vulnerability and the actuality of their vulnerability because i mean we are more vulnerable but like you say it's mainly because of other people and probably mainly because of a certain percentage of men than it is about the wild so it was interesting to me to look at why that still transpires onto our narratives about what it means to go into the wilderness as well where there supposedly are no people there's a great bit in the book where um, when she's in Greenland and she goes with um, uh, another girl that she's been travelling with for a, for a while, but also a local young woman, and they go off camping. And there's this scene where these two Danish backpackers turn up and tell them that they, you know, they're stupid and they're in danger because a polar bear might come and eat them. And they're telling that to basically a you know a Greenlander. Yeah. You do talk about some women explorers in the book, so there have been every now and then, like, mm-hmm. you know, these sort of like oddities, I guess, of people. You talk about um, Nellie Bly and Freya Stark. Who were they? Well, so they were kind of 
earlier female explorers and I think it's this thing of there are women that have been doing this for like many many years a long time but there's a kind of invisibility spell put on them like they're not they're not as written about or they didn't write themselves when they were doing it and they haven't been canonized in the same way so it's not so much that there were never women doing it and especially not now that there aren't women doing it now like there are loads of women doing it but it's still the kind of the literature that surrounds it is still male dominated and especially especially during the time when like the kind of literary canon has been in formation like there were no hardly any women writing about it then and I guess those women that were doing it as well were you know if you were a a Victorian guy you decided you want to go off and explore you know you would leave your wife and children and go off and do that but the women that were doing that there's almost this assumption that they were having to sort of step outside of like normal society anyway Mm -hmm. so they probably were forsaking ever having a husband and family and just going off and doing this thing that was seen as somehow unnatural yeah and when they were doing it as well they were kind of stepping into male shoes they were having to kind of become a man to do the journey and to be taken seriously when they were doing it as well. Yeah, well, I wanted to talk about this idea of um, women not having the same sort of, like, idea that they should go out and tame nature because women themselves are somehow seen as part of nature itself. And I guess we can see that in the talk. Can we talk about the title, the word for woman is wilderness? Because that's sort of implicit in that title. It was interesting to me that we've got a simultaneous thing where women in language and in the way that we're positioned in society and stuff, we're kind of reduced to nature as, like, another one of man's others. But then at the same time, we're excluded from the idea of what it means to be alone in the wilderness and with nature. So the title was kind of... There's obviously, like, a double meaning to it. So on the one hand woman is synonymous with wilderness in the reductive sense. And then word in the sense that the word, as in language, is wilderness to women because it's inaccessible to us in the sense that language is inaccessible to us or something that we can't quite fully grasp because of the way that it structures us apart from man and from civilization. I meant to say this before when we were talking again about the you know the ideas of um, the different states of like man's relationship a man's relationship with nature, because the other idea is that again when we talk about you know man perhaps deciding to go out and be wild and become sort of more authentic, and that's somehow admired. Mm-hmm. The idea of a a wild woman is like somebody that's out of control that yeah. needs sort of like bringing back into the fold. As yeah, well. yeah, it's kind of it's made to seem almost like monstrous and maybe it's a thing of like a man is kind of choosing to do away with civilization and go and do that as a choice for him whereas a woman is being reduced to her innate biology as a kind of emotional wobbly creature that i don't know i think it's it's like this semantic thing of it being a choice or it being something that's kind of not forced upon you, but it's already innate, so you can't choose it. And that's something you see in, you know, that's like a common trope of, you know, Westerns, which is obviously like people out in the in the wilderness, even though most of them are set, you know, uh, are sort of set in little towns. But the idea that, like, civilization is something that's done to our heroes, you know, the guys 
that are out there doing stuff, and then the mm-hmm. town is gradually encroaching on the wilderness. Yeah. And often representing that civilization is is women. Because the whole the whole concept of wilderness is really tied up in the whole kind of like frontiers mythology or whatever. It's it's which you know is completely colonial. It's like the the vast space that hasn't yet been got to. And yeah, it was it was men that were doing the getting to, and the women kind of dragging the towns along behind them in a way because they were bringing the kind of the place would be reached, and then they'd come in and bring the domestic and be the the force of the settlement being created in a way. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Abby Andrews and we're talking about her debut novel, which is The Word for Woman is Wilderness. And Abby, we've talked about these some of the, you know, the the books that have influenced this idea, the sort of Thoreau's and the Jack Kerouac's and the Jack London's and things, although we didn't mention Kerouac. He does feature quite critically in the book. There's also this thing around at the minute, the new nature writing, which, you know, this book is in some ways sort of redolent of some great women writers, like, you know, things like, you know, Amy Liptrot and like Helen MacDonald. But of course, this is a story of a journey, you know, rather than a more, well, I mean, I guess there is an inner journey in this book mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. But what I was struck by was Erin is writing a memoir like a travel memoir she's taking this journey and she's writing that memoir this is almost a fictionalized version of one of those books so i guess what i'm taking a long time to ask is why is this a novel and not a memoir i mean in in the first place because the whole thing started as an i it started as an idea as 
for a documentary and I wanted to do the journey and make the documentary and then I realised that I couldn't because I was still at uni and I didn't have any money and then I was just like well I'm just going to start writing it and sort of do the journey imaginatively. So it started as a fictional travelogue in the first place but then it became kind of important to me because of all the kind of complications tied up in writing a wilderness. So the whole thing with like um, the Chris McCandless thing again, he went there and he had that experience and he made his own, like he kept a diary I think and took photographs and stuff but it wasn't until there was the film made about him that after that just hordes and hordes of people go there now and his wilderness has been completely undone and corrupted and if he was still alive he'd probably be absolutely horrified so it became this thing of it being important to me anyway that I was writing about somewhere that I had never been to before just to try and have that kind of remove from it I don't know I guess it just became this thing of the the concept of wilderness was more the it didn't need to be an actual landscape it just needed to be an idea and then I was sort of bringing these different ideas and sort of playing them off against each other so it just made sense for it to just kind of exist just as a sort of imaginary fictional journey and indeed you the documentary still forms part of the story Erin is making this documentary on the journey and to the extent that you include you know segments of interviews and things but also journal wise there's photographs and there's drawings so why was it was it important to to keep it feeling like that sort of that journal feeling yeah i wanted i wanted to make it as convincing as a travelogue as possible and i wanted to call the fictionality of it into question which i mean i think people have been a bit confused by it actually in terms of like sometimes like i get i get asked quite a lot if i've done the journey and stuff like that and so i guess it succeeded in that sense and that's good because i i thought it was important to try and approach it that way well it's very it's very vividly described obviously incredibly well researched let's talk about you know how you how you actually wrote it a lot of research and i i did the journey through google earth basically pretty much all of the at least all of the bit across canada the road trip um because i wanted i i don't know why like i can't really justify it now but i wanted for anyone to read it and be able to pick it apart and for the fact like the facts in it to still stand kind of thing um in terms of like places that she went to and things that she saw when she was in these different places i wanted to try and make it as factually accurate as possible and that's really interesting that that sort of impulse because it is fictional you could have just made it up yeah why do you feel that responsibility i think i was just really determined that it was going to be questionably a fiction because it kind of the only reason to make it non-fiction was well i mean which i think is an important reason was the whole thing about it being a kind of trying to avoid the corruption aspect of it i don't know and i just i just like it it was a it was a interesting task do you know what i mean i sort of set it as a task for myself i think that that idea of the you know as you said the sort of corruption of it and you mentioned again mccallanus and the idea that you know people would now follow that trail and i guess you know probably cheryl strayed or whatever there's probably like a you know walking tours down the, <laughs> down, down the coast or something to do that and again even though you know erin is is always sort of implicit in this 
idea that she's doing something different. She's not one of those sort of like macho mountain men guys yeah. doing this thing. She's not an imperialist, but at the same time, she's going out and doing this trail, which, you know, conceivably, yeah. if she's making this documentary about yeah. it, other people could yeah. could choose to follow. Yeah, so, so then she does, she realises that, and then it's a thing that's kind of like, it could go one way or the other kind of thing. Like, I would like to think that when once she gets to the point where she's like, oh, I can't make this documentary anymore, kind of going through her reasons for getting rid of it, that the reader would kind of go along with that and that would make sense to them. Um, but there is also obviously the risk of it just being like, oh, it's an adventure novel and it makes you really want to just like go to Denali National Park and stay in a cabin and post it on Instagram, which would be kind of like counterproductive to the themes of the novel. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing. That's that's basically like the crux of the novel and like her kind of realisation is that she is basically just the same as all those people because she's she's documenting it. And just because she's a woman doing it doesn't doesn't mean that it takes away from the kind of like colonial imperialist aspect of it. She's just reinforcing that again as another white person. Also, throughout this novel, there's some sort of like discursive asides. You know, Erin will tell us about thoughts that she has about Voyager One leaving the solar system, about time capsules, about Yuri Gagarin, the Long Now Foundation, and things. Tell us about some of these ideas that she brings into the into the book the whole thing of kind of space and space travel was i guess it was just another parallel i mean it was interesting to me in terms of like obviously space is we've got all these final frontiers like alaska underneath the sea but like space is conceived as like the final final frontier and so thinking about it's got similar parallels again with like gender the whole thing about how space travel for ages was it was a thing that only men could do. And since it was also decided at the time, you know, that women would actually physically, be more physically yeah, capable. physically much better suited to space travel than men were. Um, but obviously that, that just couldn't it just couldn't be that women would mm -hmm. be in space before men were. And and then again with like the imperialism of space. Yeah, space as a thread kind of runs all the way through it because that it is just like this whole like parallel. So in terms of like the biggest wilderness and the furthest like colonization we have attempted, that would be maybe like the Voyagers and the fact that they're so far away now and they've got a little the golden records on them. And that's essentially us colonizing the future and of, of space and time. And also you talk about those ideas of like the sort of time capsules, mm -hmm. which are, you know, like the one that's under a, the, the university somewhere. Yeah. Which again is supposed to be opened in 10,000 years or something. Yeah. But again, as people of now colonising the future. Yeah, yeah, I really liked that. Like the idea of people just conceptually colonising the future with time capsules because... And nuclear waste. Yeah, and and the, and the parallel in those things and how like nuclear waste in a way is this kind of like impulse that it's the same impulse but it's like a more deadly version of that impulse a couple of people that figure throughout the book that i just i just wanted to to make mention of and the first is rachel carson who repeatedly appears to erin in dreams tell me why i mean silent spring kick-started the modern environmental movement and it was also my own kind of 
first proper I mean I've been like environmentally conscious or whatever but I'd never really read any like literature about it um and that was the first thing that I read and it just opened things up for me a lot in terms of how we relate to the natural world and the fact that she was a woman writing that it just became interesting to me that it was a woman that kickstarted it by paying really close attention to what was in her home and caring about her own landscape rather than kind of it being literature about going out into nature and the whole like even if it's communion just going out to nature which is separate from us it was about how the land around her was being destroyed and indeed herself yeah and you know and then she died of cancer and maybe that was to do with pesticides maybe it wasn't well the other person that i wanted to to spend some time talking about is i guess the sort of dark side of a of walden pond somebody else living in a you know living in a shed somewhere, Ted Kaczynski features. <laughs> Why does he feature so strongly in the book? I guess he's just this kind of iconic figure of just the whole idea of the absolute division between nature and civilization, and civilization being the machine and it being very much in conflict with a pristine version of nature, which was something that I can be really sympathetic about and, like, Erin is, in the beginning, is kind of like a Kaczynski sympathiser in a way. But then I wanted to start questioning, like, that dichotomy. And he he's just a really good sort of figure to look at in, in, in terms of those things. Just one more thing from me before I'll get you to read a little bit of the book, if you would. Obviously, books take a long time to write and they take even longer to get published. But... This book has come out, it would seem, at a at a moment where there is, it would seem, a sort of cultural change going on with all this like, Me Too stuff and everything. Do you feel that, like, this is a good time for the book to come out? I think in terms of feminism and in terms of environmentalism as well. So when I started writing it, I mean, it, it, took, about, it took about five years from beginning to end. And when I first started writing it, it really didn't feel like environmentalism and feminism were a mainstream thing. And now it just seems like it's just so... I mean, which is which is bloody amazing and brilliant. So, yeah, I think it's just... I think it's a kind of thing of, like, those things were brewing then and I was probably thinking about them because they were brewing elsewhere and starting to, like, notice things without realising I was noticing them. And then by the time I'd finished the book, yeah, now it's all... It's been caught on a wave, I think, which is brilliant. I'll get you to read a bit, if you would. Passing through the heliopause... The space probe Voyager 1 left the planet in 1977. Any month, day, minute, second now, it will enter interstellar space and become the furthest reaching man-made object and the first to leave the heliosphere. This will be one of the biggest moments in scientific history and we will never know exactly when it happened. Three things would signify that Voyager 1 had crossed the border of the heliopause, an increase in galactic cosmic rays, reversal of the direction of the magnetic field and a decrease in the temperature of of charged particles. Voyager 1 reports show a 25% increase per month of cosmic rays, but its signals take 17 hours to travel to Earth at the speed of light. When did my journey begin? At the moment of its conception. When I left home in a delivery van with a friend of my dad's who was going north with some furniture. My friends waved me off with the dog. I filmed it. My mum cried. That felt like a beginning. Or was it the moment the freighter pulled away in the mop bucket waters off Immingham on a grey day in March? 
It came about like this. I was watching a film about a runaway called Chris McCandless who ditched his Ivy League trust fund life and travelled all across America to go to Alaska and live the Jack London dream, where he ate some poisonous potatoes and died. This was 1992, the year before I was born. I cried and promised myself I would start a savings account to fund a trip to Alaska, where I too could live in the wilderness in total solitude. Then I went through the film step by step and analysed how it would have been different if the guy had been a girl. Really, it would have been a completely different film, not just in the sense that there were situations in it that would likely have different outcomes for the different sexes. Example, when he got beaten up by a conductor who finds him stowing away on his freight train, but more fundamentally because a girl wanting to shun modern society and go AWOL in the, into the wilderness to live by killing and eating small animals and scavenge plants would just be considered unsettling. Woodcutting mystic Henry David Thoreau shares some of the blame for this. He said things like chastity is the flowering of man and what are called genius, heroism, holiness and the like are but various fruits which succeed it, as though even having sex with a woman would ruin your transcendentalism. Man is used to refer to humanity as a whole. When man is pitted against nature in a dynamic of conquest, nature is usually a she. Wildness in women does not mean autonomy and freedom. Their wildness is instead an irrational fever. Simultaneously, in survivalist terms, we are the weaker sex and cannot prosper individually outside of the social sphere without the protection of a manly man. Women are both excluded from and banished to nature. Even on those documentary channels that do programmes on whole families homesteading in the wilderness, the woman is always mountain man's wife, never ever mountain woman, just an annex of the mountain man, along with his beard, pipe and gun. In Coming Into the Country Travels in Alaska, the writer John McPhee describes lots of mountain men in careful detail and a few mountain women in passing comments. One of the mountain men tells John McPhee that he wanted to be utterly and totally alone, cut off deep in the country, with only three daughters and one wife, or his women folks as he liked to call them. There are exceptions to the invisibility spell, of course. There is Calamity Jane the cowgirl, Nellie Bly who did a trip around the world in 72 days, Freya Stark the travel writer of the Middle East, Mary Kingsley the explorer and that old lady that went over the Niagara Falls in a wooden barrel. But the problem is exactly that there are exceptions. It is as though there is something significant to learn in the wild but it can only be accessed by men. In the wild men carve out their individual and manly selves as though women are not allowed individual and authentic selves. The story has the exact same plot, but a woman alone in wilderness means something totally inverted. So I had this idea for a journey to Alaska. I've been talking to Abby Andrews. We've been talking about The Word for Woman is Wilderness, which is her debut novel and is out now from Serpent's Tale. Abby, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, or even a lot, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.